We're going to start the sermon a little different this morning, this morning, differently than we usually do. In just a moment, we're going to put a quote on the screen, and I would ask of you that you would just take a minute to reflect upon it, to reflect on what it says, what it means, whether you agree with it or not, its implications. So we'll take a a full minute and and simply reflect on on this quote. Um, Let's go ahead and put it on the screen. Let's, we, let's go ahead and read it together, and then we'll reflect on it. Would you read it with me? In fellowship with God, there lies a claim which man fulfills when he trusts. Let's take a minute and reflect on that. We'll come back to that line uh, in just a bit. If you've been tracking along, we are in a series called This Is Us. During these five Sundays, we're looking at some statements that Uh, We made, a number of years back, statements that we said on a good day, this is who we are. This is our why. These are our defining habits, our defining values. And then next Sunday, we'll talk about our what. What is it that we actually do? You've heard it shared time and time again. In fact, Pat even shared it this morning that we talk about our strategy all the time, how we move forward. We move in through friendships that minister the love of Christ. We move up by um, God transforming us as we learn and live His Word. We move out uh, by serving our neighbor with genuine agape care, the kind of care that Jesus showed. That's our strategy. That's how we move forward. These statements are the ones that undergird that strategy, that, that are there as part of the, the infrastructure that holds up and gives meaning to that strategy. And so today we're going to look at the third of the three habits, the third of the three divine, defining values. And so um, today it's trust in God, trust in God. Uh, and what we've meant by that over the years is that, gosh, when it comes to forks in the road, and this church looks at the opportunities, and, the, and, and it seems like we're coming up against maybe just a, a jump or a leap or a, a movement where we don't feel as secure. After a process of uh, prayer and discernment, we say, you know, God is more than sufficient, more than sufficient, and we trust in God. Today, our, our passage is going to be Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 lamentations. If you find Jeremiah, keep going to the right. If you find Ezekiel, go back to the left. Uh, Lamentations between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 3. Hear the word of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. May God bless the reading of His Word. May God show His favor upon us as we come under His Word today. So today, um, what I want us to do is we're going to spend a little time in Lamentations. We're going to to look at what what we can understand from that passage, and, and then we're going to end up from that passage, we're going to talk some more about this whole journey of trusting in God. And then we'll come back to the quote we reflected on. Um, just as a, a, a word for those of you that, that measure such things, or maybe your internal time clock is scheduled for certain things, this message is going to be a little bit longer. It's not why I brought the chair up. Don't, it's not going to be that long. 
but if, if your watch gets to that point and it vibrates on your wrist, ah, breathe, and we'll, we'll get through this together. Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is, is this, it, it's a hard juxtaposition to make, but it's this wonderful collection of laments. Some will say that the book of Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, the prophet. That Jeremiah, in the midst of that, uh, of that chaotic time, that time of upheaval, where God's people had not been living according to God's covenant, that the people of the su- southern kingdom of Judah ha- had really been going against what God had called them to do. And so God, as part of that covenant, was faithful to His covenant, and He brought consequences to His own people. And so uh, Babylon, the Babylonians, were making siege on Jerusalem, and they ended up taking maybe as much as 25% of the community into exile. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if there were another country, even today, that that came storming into your neighborhood and took 25% of the people away? In fact, came into our community and took the leadership away. And, and, and so all of the economy would shift. And the, the economy would go through that other country. And that, the kind of upheaval that that would cause. And poverty and discord and separation and grieving. Just to give us a little bit of a sense of what the people of the time felt about this experience. How this experience impacted them. We can find in the book of lamentations, these five chapters, and each chapter serving as a separate lament. And so from chapter one, this helps to give a bit of a picture. In verses eight and nine, and then again in 11, here's what we find. This first set of scriptures is all about Jerusalem, Jerusalem personified as a way of expressing the hardships. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. When we move on to the second lament, It gives us a picture of just how harsh God's judgment was. We find in verses 20 and 21, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old, My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Do you capture that? That they're even turning to God in the midst of this hardship and saying, God, you're behind this. Are you aware of what you are doing in our midst? And finally, from the fifth lament, we pick up this, this sense of its continued just outpouring of grief and, and, and yearning for something better. And at the very end, there's this acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. In a, 
semi-hope-filled petition. Here's what we find in verses 19 through 22. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. You get the feeling. This is desperation. This is such great sense of loss that God has let go of them. In the middle of all of these laments, in the middle of the middle chapter, in chapter 3, we find this section of Scripture, this section of lament that has a very different feel to it. In the middle of the middle of the laments comes this word of acknowledgement of God's goodness. And so we have our passage that we've already read. And, and what I want us to do now is let's take a look at that passage. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 22 itself. In fact, the first part of 22. And it may be that if you have a new international version, and when we read the text this morning, you said, wait a minute, my text doesn't say that. And so we have in our translations two seemingly very different things. Lamentations 3.22 in the ESV, and then a number of other versions that go along with the ESV, we read the words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In the NIV, it reads differently in a number of other translations as well. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. It turns out, and there are a number of places like this in Scripture, where when scholars look at the uh, the manuscripts, the, 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 uh, the ancient sheets that we have that bring to us Scripture, and they look at them, and they have to make judgments between manuscripts because not all the manuscripts always line up with each other. And they have to weigh, well, what evidence seems to say that this might be a, a shift of a scribe that they miswrote, or what would give evidence that this one might be a little bit more trustworthy than the others? And so we have here in the translations into English today that there is a, a split in the scholars. The good thing is nothing really is lost because in this they, they both affirm what is true. What, what takes place is, is that in the ESV and the others that agree with them is that they rely on the parallelism. That they say, look, the statement is simply being repeated when we read it, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases... And then we follow it up with the next line. Here we see the parallelism. His mercies never come to an end. Two things saying the same thing. When the NIV and, and the folks that are behind that interpretation, they look at it and they make this statement. They say, look, it's talking about impact. That if we look at, at the power of uh, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, which would affirm the mercies of God. And then finally, this statement is made, for his compassions never fail. 
So whether you have ESV or NIV, breathe. Breathe. It speaks to God's goodness. In fact, when we take verses 22 and the first part of 23 together, we find this affirmation. This steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. There's this affirmation in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all of life being uh, turned upside down. There's this affirmation of God is good. Is God holy? Absolutely. Is God just? Yes. Is God righteous? Yes. Those things are always true, but they never negate that God is good. Maybe you've heard someone say before, maybe you've said it before, that, that you know, I like the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament seems like he's always angry. The God who judges in the Old Testament is the same God who judges in the New Testament. And the God who's good in the New Testament is the same God who's good in the Old Testament. So at any given time, at any given time, no matter what we're experiencing in this world, we can affirm the goodness of God. That we can trust the goodness of God. The steadfast, loyal, covenant love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Always true. Always true. Then we come to the second half of verse 23. That second half Great is your faithfulness, which the song we sang, Great is Your Faithfulness, comes from this passage. Great is your faithfulness. The word for faithfulness is the word, and if you are a Hebrew scholar or you happen to speak Hebrew, my apologies ahead of time. This is the way I pronounce the word. It's probably not the way the word is actually pronounced. Emuna. Emuna. It's a special word. It's a special word in Scripture. In fact, it's related to the word aman, which we know, in, as we move that into English, it becomes also amen. And it's this word of, of being able to, um, of, of confirmation. Of, in fact, when we talk about emuna, it means then faithfulness, dependability, utter, ultimate, full dependability in reference to God. When we use the word amen, it's translated as, so be it. This is true. Amuna is saying, God is faithful, trustworthy, fully dependable at all times. There's a little book by a Presbyterian pastor, now deceased a scholar. His name's Earl Palmer. Uh, Earl Palmer uh, wrote a book called uh, Faith That Works faith that works. In this book, he makes this statement, and we'll put it up on the screen. Faith is our response to the evidence of God's self-evidence. You know, we could just drop the microphone right now, walk out. Just don't you love statements that scholars make? Faith, which is from a biblical standpoint to say trust, 
In Scripture, when we look at the Greek, and then the Greek, at least in Scripture, is based on the Hebrew, and the idea of faith is not just belief, it's not just intellectual agreement, but to, uh, to have faith is, is to believe, yes, but it's to trust. It's to trust, to find God's trustworthiness fully dependable, and so we trust, and we follow that up with our will, that our wills then be, uh, come aligned with God's will. It's trust. So trust is our response to the evidence of God's self-evidence. Let me do a little bit of explanation with that. So here I have a chair. And I can look at the chair and I can say this is a trustworthy chair. I am making an observation. There are light particles, waves that are hitting the chair and my eyes have receptors on it. My brain's processing the information and it looks like it has structural integrity and even more, I have memory of sitting on this chair. In fact, I could sit on it right now and I can say, this chair is trustworthy. But somebody on a different planet would have no knowledge of this chair because its evidence is only located right here in this place. If you happen to be on Kepler 1649C, uh, habitable exoplanet. I can't remember how many light years away it is from here. Someone's looking it up right now. Don't, don't, you can if you want. But if you happen to be on Kepler 1649c, you would have no knowledge of this chair. Let's say this chair is God. Let's say this chair is God. In fact, this chair is the creator God who created all things. If this chair happened to be God who created all things, then even if you're on Kepler 1649C, because that would have been created by the chair, that even there, there would be imprints of God because God is self-evident. God is not relying upon my definition of God to establish who God is. God is self-evident. He's known. He, He makes himself knowable. And so trust Trust is our response, human response, to the evidence we see all over the place in history and Scripture, in the sending of Jesus, in our own experiences. We see evidence of the Creator God, not this chair, the the Creator God. And in response to that evidence, we trust. We trust. Great is His faithfulness. Great is his dependability. So our response is one of trust. Now, with that kind of base to it, that God is always good, is he just? Yes. Is he righteous? Yes. Is he holy? Yes. Will he judge when there is judgment to be made? Absolutely. Did he send Jesus into this world that through the provision of Jesus that his grace would come upon us and Jesus would receive our judgment and our faith in Jesus that we... Uh, we get God's grace and forgiveness? Yes, that is all true. What I'd like to be able to do now is let's look at this experience of trust. So the first thing that we'll explore is the contexts for trust. The context for trust. And we don't need to spend a whole lot of time here, but let's simply make this statement. Because faith, which we've already said, faith is trust, it includes trusting Because faith, trust, is based on God's faithfulness, 
and not merely on our experiences. Every situation provides the context for having faith in God. Are you having financial struggles? Someone you love going through a really hard time? Was there somebody in your life that died and you just have this grief deep inside yourself? Has another nation come in and invaded your nation and taken away 25% of your people and left you so hungry and desperate they talk of moms eating their own children? No matter what our experiences are, the dependability and the goodness of God remains true. That in God's great working, in God's great working in this world, God works out His love and His holiness all at the same time in our midst. And our hope, our trust, is in God and His goodness. The context for trust, because faith or trust is based on God's faithfulness and not merely on our experiences. Every situation provides the context for trusting God. Every moment. All right? Let's talk a little bit about struggles with trust. Struggles with trust. My guess is that if you put all of us together, that that we're not all aligned already saying, well, I trust God, it's all good. Why are we even having this conversation? I would imagine in this room, and we're not going to call for sign of hands or show of hands or anything, but I would imagine that there's quite a few of us, myself included, that struggle with trusting God. In Palmer's book, Faith That Works, he's helpful here. He, he identifies three different kinds of doubts. We're going to take a quick look at them, at least define them, and I'm going to throw in a fourth just for a kicker. And so there's, he speaks of doubts of disappointment. So we believe like, we can have trust and that God is good and God is faithful and He's dependable, but we can have doubts of disappointment. The way Palmer describes this is that we've had some kind of an experience where God did not live up to our standards, where God did not live up to our expectations. And so we hurt. God, you could have. Why didn't you? God, how could you allow this? And because we have that disappointment, we wonder, God, are you even there? Are are you even there? Are you trustworthy? I've seen this, not just in my home, I've seen it in so many homes around the world. God, are you to be trusted? There's also the doubts of reason. These are the doubts where we begin to ask questions, and and so we look at stuff like cosmology, and we also look at quantum uh, mechanics, and and we might look at anthropology, and we might look at ecclesiology or or interfaith uh, expressions, and we might look at all of this evidence around the world, and we go, this seems so unreasonable to say that the God of the Bible is the God over all things, or that there is even a God. And so we come to the whole question of trusting in God, and we have these doubts Doubts where we go, I I know too much to believe in God. Then there are the doubts of self. The term that Palmer uses, doubts of self, 
Doubts of self are doubts because of something inside of us. Maybe, maybe we've had a really hard time with trusting others. Maybe there was an experience in our own personal life where our own trust was so violated by somebody else that the thought of trusting anybody, let alone an unseen figure, trusting them becomes so hard because we have trust issues. Maybe we've had an experience with an earthly father that, that to put my faith in a God who is called Heavenly Father, we go, I can't do it. I just can't do it. My doubts because of that term father are just too severe. Maybe we've struggled with loving others because of something in our life and we just shut down and so it becomes a doubting of God's trustworthiness, His love, because of the limits we've already experienced from others. The one I would throw in with this list is uh, the term doubts of distraction. Doubts of distraction. This doesn't necessarily start in terms of, of, a, of a thinking doubt. It may, it may, but we just give ourselves to distraction. Yes, on a good day, we'll affirm, oh, God is great. God sent Jesus in this world. Jesus is coming back. You know, faith in Jesus, it leads to eternal life. We may be able to affirm all those things, but then we find ourselves often distracted. That maybe we're distracted by, by our wealth. <laughs> And so we're so distracted by our wealth, we go, God, I don't need to depend on you or on your understanding of economics. I'm going to take this. I'm going to be in charge. You can be sovereign over Kepler 1649C, but I'm going to be sovereign over my life and my wealth. And so I'm distracted by my own wealth, and I'm not going to trust God in how I handle my wealth. God, this is off limits to you. Maybe we're distracted by our anger. And in a given moment, we will let our anger rule the situation. Yes, God calls me to be generous of spirit, to be kind with my words, and, and to love other people, and, and to be forgiving. But if I'm distracted by my anger, I push all that out the door. And now it's a doubt of distraction. I'm so distracted by my anger, I become self-righteous, and I implement my own plan instead of trusting God and God's plan. So, there could be more, but we'll leave it at those four. How do we respond to struggles? If we're called to trust God, trust in God every single day, every moment as a congregation, as individuals, what do we do with these doubts? Let me give us three things. These don't solve it immediately, but they allow us to keep moving forward. The first is this, ask deep questions. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean you have to cram them down or, or shove them in or, or not express them. Ask deep questions and keep asking deep questions. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to look like everybody, you think everybody else looks. They probably have doubts too. Ask deep questions. The second thing would be listen for God's answers. You know, sometimes I can get so excited about my questions that I stop listening for God's answers. I wear my questions like merit badges, like some kind of sense of, oh, look at me, I'm so real, I've got doubts. And so keep listening for God's answers. And the third piece would be stay in fellowship. Stay in fellowship because it's in fellowship both with God and with God's people 
that we can keep asking those deep questions, that we can keep hearing God's answers and listening for God's answers together, and that when I am weak, others will lift me up. When you are weak, others will lift you up. Context for for trust struggles with trust. This final piece here then is pictures of trust. Pictures of trust. I'm going to give them to you in two different sets. The first set is kind of from the inside out, how we might uh, view the the trust moments, these these pictures of uh, of when we're called to trust. So one picture within this section is big trust. Big trust. And this might be that moment when you feel like you've come up to the edge and like God's asking you to to really go all in and, and you feel so vulnerable. And it's that big moment. And what might be a big moment for you may not be seen as a big moment for others. You know, in the life of this congregation, one of our big moments was when two congregations had the question, should we become one? That's a big moment in the life of an individual congregation. They had so much history and family stories and their own journey of, of walking with God, and they had to choose they had to discern, they had to take the step. Will we become one? There was that moment where we were located down on Knoxville and, and there was this question of, should we move north? Should we just uproot ourselves, leave this building and build a new building and, and take on debt and, and figure out what it is to be in a new locale? What if we lose people? It was a moment of trust. We can make a long list. Should we take on the great banquet? Should, uh, should we go deeper in discipleship? Should we do this? Should we do that? Those big trust moments. Maybe you have them in your own life. Maybe that's that sense. Should I trust Jesus? Should I, should I move? Should, should I open up my house to my neighbors and welcome them in? And for you, that's the biggest trust there is. Should I trust God in this moment of anger in my marriage and trust that his way is better than my way? If one picture is big trust, then maybe the next is in the moment trust. In the moment trust. This is just when we're going through every day and in that moment. Will I let God be in, trust, uh, be in charge of my, we've already mentioned, in charge of my wealth? In charge of my words? Should I let God be in charge of how I behave at the office? Should I be, let God be in charge of, of what I put online and my engagement with social media? That instead of maybe just only showing myself in the best of light, I can be a little bit more vulnerable and open up. Or I can pray for people instead of judging people. And in the moment, we trust God's goodness and His plan. In the moment, trust. And the third kind would be learned trust. Oh, this is such a rich trust. It's that walking with God over time. And in all the moments where you've trusted in other things, you've learned your lessons, and, and it comes that moment of, God, you're good, worthy of all my trust. The other set of pictures, and we'll do them quickly, would be what other people see. If you're trusting God, here's what they would be able to see in you. If I'm trusting God, here's what they would be able to see in me. The first is a heart of God, a heart for God. You know that statement about David that a man after God's own heart, what would it be if it was 
fill in your name, so-and-so, a person after God's own heart. Other people, if you're trusting God, they would be able to see that person's different. That person lives. I can see the heart of God in who they are and the choices that they make. The second picture would be the way of Christ, the way of Jesus. If we're trusting in God, if we say, I believe the goodness of God, I believe that His steadfast love never ceases, I believe that His mercies never come to an end, I believe that His mercies are new every morning, great is His faithfulness, then people would be able to see us and go, I see the way of Christ in the way they live their lives. The third picture others might see would be that they see the fruit of the Spirit. That when people would look at you because you trust God, they would see God at work bringing about the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They, they would be able to see these things. The heart of God, the way of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. All right. So as we bring it all together, we've talked about lamentations. We've talked about, yes, there are times when God's judgment comes in this world, but God is eternally good. It's who God is. His self-evident presence is everywhere. And we have evidence that allows us to grab hold of that and believe and trust in Him. Is He holy and just and righteous? Absolutely. Will His judgment come? Yes. In fact, Jesus absorbed that judgment on our behalf that through faith in Him we would have eternal life with God. And so we affirm that every context is a context for trust. And that it's possible to have trust and have doubts and to struggle with trusting even in the midst of having these doubts. And yet, if we, if we keep asking deeper questions, if we, we keep listening for God and we keep staying in fellowship, we open ourselves up to seeing the faithfulness of God more and more. And then we looked at a set of pictures. So let's go back to our statement. Let's put our statement up on the screen. In fellowship with God, there lies a claim which man fulfills when he trusts. Putting it more generically, in fellowship with God, there lies a claim which humans fulfill when they trust. If you take those four parts, in fellowship with God... God extends His fellowship to you. This church believes in its fellowship with God. The elders of this church affirm this is our direction going forward, in fellowship with God. In fellowship with God, there lies a claim. The fellowship with God is not claimless. It comes with, with this claim upon anybody that's going to be a part of that fellowship. And the way we fulfill that claim, the way that we fulfill that claim is by trusting in the faithfulness of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for one another. We pray, God, that we would have that experience of trusting in you that no matter what's going on in our life right now, good, bad, ugly, severe, easy, hard, difficult, strenuous, arduous, depleting, affirming, whatever it might be, that God, we would look to you, that we would listen for you, that we would be open to seeing you, evidence 
of your self-evidence that we would be a people collectively and individually, that we would be a people that trust in you more and more every day, in the moment, big opportunities, and that we would learn trust and become deeper and richer. For the one in this room that feels so overwhelmed, so disconnected from you, would you bless? Would you show yourself? Would they know this morning before they leave this room that you love them and that you are faithful and trustworthy and eternally dependable? We give you praise. We give you praise. Great is your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.